0: For this episode of The Good Future Podcast, we're doing things a little differently. I'm sharing a conversation I had with a fellow sustainability specialist, Corey Ames. Corey hails from San Antonio in Texas. He hosts the Social Entrepreneurship and Innovation Podcast. And when he invited me back onto his show, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to share it with you all, to offer a different perspective on my work, my ideas, and how The Good Future Podcast has evolved. You'll hear a lot more of my voice in this episode than usual, but I did try to turn the questions back to Corey to dig into the social enterprise sector in the US and understand the opportunities and challenges he's seen to drive positive change through business and innovation. To complement his podcast, Corey has also built the Grow Ensemble website, which is a hub for purpose-led businesses, and a valuable resource for consumers wanting to find companies that balance people, planet, and profit. Now, this is a different format for me, so please do let me know what you think. I'm always open to feedback, so feel free to send me an email. All the details are on my website at johntreadgold.com. I'm really eager to hear from you all, so you can also reach out to me on my personal LinkedIn page as well as the Good Future Instagram account. All right, nothing left to do, but dive in. To my conversation with Corey Ames. Here we go.
1: I'm curious to start, if you wouldn't mind, since the last time we spoke was was early COVID-19 pandemic. I think we spoke in spring of 2020. So, so as just about as early as it could be. Uh, we're not in endemic right now, but hopefully, hopefully, late stage pandemic. How's post-COVID, John, shaping up right now?
0: Post-COVID, it's a funny one, isn't it? Um, I'm (laughs) here in Australia, and while we have relaxed a lot of the restrictions, uh, there's probably more COVID around than ever. I've had it myself recently, and it knocked me around pretty seriously. But yeah, I think as in many places in the world, obviously not in China, there is this View of, okay, we've got vaccination rates up to a certain level, so we're going to relax the most stringent restrictions, and people are essentially learning to live with it. Um, Doesn't mean it's easy, but (laughs) yeah, look, that's right. We spoke at at the beginning of 2020, and and we just didn't know what to expect. You know, you look at the way the stock market reacted, and it was hell and brimstone. And fortunately, it didn't turn out to be quite as dire. Vaccine was pretty miraculous in terms of it's production and we all sort of landed on our feet but yeah i mean bringing that down to a personal level like yourself i work for myself as an independent consultant and so yeah there was a lot of uncertainty in those early days i lost a, a couple of clients so that was pretty tough but in this world that i work in which is the world of sustainable investing and working with investors that are, that are leading in that space The years prior had been a really positive time of growth of ESG and impact, but there were the doubters that said Mm. it wouldn't weather a downturn. It was a fair weather trend, Um, but that was all proved wrong because essentially this world of ESG and impact is all about understanding the investment risk factors beyond just the traditional financial factors that's what a pandemic is all about. That is the outlier. <laughs> that is the, the social impacts and the worker impacts, health impacts. And so, yeah, the, the field, the sector grew, if anything, and financial returns were really strong. Now, that's clearly partly due to the, the general market sentiment that hit a low, but then rapidly swerved back up. Obviously, technology companies, which are naturally low carbon, did well. That tends to have a weighting in, in ESG and impact funds. Mm. We don't need to get into that. But yeah, so look, an interesting roller coaster ride. My business, like any other, was up and down, but we're in halfway through 2022 <laughs> and everything's looking really good. There's mm. the perception, the need, the awareness. Of terms like ESG and impact are stronger than they've ever been. And there is now a a sort of a pushback. And I see that as a a natural part of the hype cycle. And and in some ways it shows that we're making traction and that those that don't want change, the incumbents are pushing back stronger than ever. So yeah, I think the fundamentals haven't changed and all's looking good. How about yourself? Mm. The the world of social enterprise is intrinsically linked there. Has much changed for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, much of the same and certainly some different components as well. I mean, it seems like the last two plus years have been perhaps like a condensed 10 years of history in some sort of way. I don't know if it's like some sort of like hyper attentive focus on media and news and the happenings around the world because we're all at home for that period of time, but it feels like a whole bunch of things happened, and really nothing at all happened in such a short, condensed amount of time. So I feel like, from the aspect of, of social enterprise and, and just broadly sustainable business, I do feel like there's a lot more hands involved. Just anecdotally speaking, for one, there's uh, companies who who weren't speaking with such messages and communications before the pandemic, who now are, you know, making climate pledges, or as well you know, you might be referring to, or or you could look to the the social justice movements in the US, a lot of companies taking some sort of activist stance during that time and moving forward to where I I feel like the social and environmental consciousness of companies, consciousness, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, awareness, perhaps, just that, that these are things that are quite concerning to people is much higher than it was before. But you know, if, if we're speaking to social enterprise, social enterprise versus just the broad spectrum of of all business, you know, be it from the, the Amazons to the small businesses that that perhaps are started for a different purpose, I'm noticing that the spectrum of those businesses that are interested in social and environmental impact or consciousness is varying widely from the multinationals to startups in, in much smaller groups. So more people are involved. And of course, it's an exciting thing, you know, as as you're mentioning, similar in the the world of finance with your realm. And as well, there's, you know, there's some things that you need to be skeptical about in some of the mainstream messaging and communications. So the interest is there, surely. And I I think likewise, just from folks, younger people who are interested in in getting into work that has purpose, has meaning, there's a much greater, it seems, commitment or, you know, obligation that it feels younger people have entering and transitioning the workforce. You know, we have this great resignation. There seems to be a a much greater pulse of people who who want to have work that has purpose. And they're looking for companies that align with those values. And I think likewise that was a trend that was happening, but I do think that COVID kind of put fuel on the fire. So more interests, you know, and likewise there's there's things to look out for and things to be wary of. But personally, you know, myself, I, I feel like it was maybe two of the hardest years i think i've i've ever had in, in working for myself i think the the level of focus and discipline you needed to have to continue to kind of like make progress and building this thing you know you conceive of of your business and was very challenging in a space where you're you're in a kind of groundhog day Uh, routine. Like I benefit a lot from novelty as I know other people do just from, you know, seeing different places and different people. And sometimes it felt like, you know, my brain was just kind of complete mush and and numb (laughs) to where it was was very hard to to have the fuel, the inspiration the next day to kind of do what felt like the same thing I did yesterday, the day before and, and weeks before that. So I think about work a little bit differently now. I, I don't know if you do. Has, has that changed at all for you? And I know working independently, you know, there's a lot of flexibility that, that is inherent and implicit in it, but perhaps emerging from, from COVID in some way, do you think about how you approach work and the balance between that with, with life at all differently or nothing noticeable?
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly been a shift that I made three, four years before the pandemic when I shifted to, to to working as an independent consultant. I feel like us consultants who, who've worked for ourselves pre-COVID, we were there already when everybody was working <laughs> at home and everyone was talking about, oh, isn't it difficult to, you know, work at a home office, you sleep in the same place that you're working. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, we've been there. Like we've worked through all of these <laughs> challenges. And, and so in some ways we were the old hands. And I mean, what's interesting is people say, oh, you'd be used to working at home, but I always found it really difficult for those reasons. I'd always try and work in a co-working space. I still really enjoyed having people around me and I needed it for focus. It's too easy to go and make a cup of tea and do the washing, all those sorts of things. Everybody's aware of that now. That's always been a challenge for me. In terms of the shift, yeah, I think that it's just a continuation of that constant, I guess, personal debate about how to manage a work-life balance What does lifestyle mean? What does work mean? What's my purpose? And I think that's only gotten stronger. And I think I have to keep remembering when I have the hard times, whether or not that's when I have not enough work or the very real problem of having too much work, which happens. It's always at one end of the extreme one end of the spectrum that I have to sort of take a moment, take a breath and be like, wow, I work for myself. Mm -hmm. I make my own hours. I'm working in a field that I'm passionate about and that I spent years researching, you know, with no pay, right, just because I really enjoyed it and wanted to know all about it. I get to ask some of the smartest people in the world questions about the field in my own podcast. And, yeah, I'm sort of at the cutting edge of this new field. And day-to-day there are challenges. It can be difficult, pros and cons. But when I zoom out and I look at where I've got to, It's really exciting to have that control. And yeah, I think I'm naturally a generalist and I now Mm -hmm. embrace that as not being a problem. I I was always like, I need a specialization, (laughs) but now I've sort of embraced being a generalist as, as a bit of a superpower in terms of being able to look at so many different areas of the world, take the macro view and the micro view and be able to process all of that and return it. And I think that's a value to my clients rather than being a sort of a a drawback. Big organizations, investment firms, they've got lots of specialists, right? And they're all in their, their section, they've got their desk, they've got their role when they do it. But the external consultant comes in and their role is to have a perception of the world and understand the market, but then also to ask lots of smart questions and and get a feel for the organization and give them a perspective on themselves that you can't do. You know, you can't read the label when you're in the jar. So yeah, embracing all of those elements that are unique to me and channeling them to bring value. So has it changed? I think, yeah, I just think that reflection is all there. And look, I think what's so interesting, beginning of 2020, we were talking about this new world. People were saying, well, we no longer ever shake hands. Mm. And I I was always like, I think you guys are overselling it. Shaking hands is so (laughs) intrinsic to humanity. Of course, we're going to hug each other. You know, the basics of human connection are not going to be blown up with an infection or virus. So, yeah, and, and here we are. Life's pretty much back to normal. People wearing masks, people shaking hands. I think it's great that we're we're more aware of hygiene people aren't going to work when they're sick. I think that's a really great outcome mm. that you know if you've got a cold, you stay home or you wear a mask and people are really aware of that so that's great washing hands yeah, it's an interesting place
1: well and and so when when we first spoke, John, your podcast, the good future podcast, I think you're in maybe the the teens or the twenties in your episodes, and I just caught your up in the '80s, you, you might be nearing episode 100 sometime soon, and so I, I'm interested to know: Has the purpose of the the Good Future podcast changed for you with time? Have you noticed it in in some way, or is your approach to it different than maybe it was a couple of years ago? And because I'm always interested to, as more people have flooded into the podcast space, there's certainly you know not many people stick around for. You know, years and years and years. So I'm really, I'm really curious to you as to how have you felt about sustaining, you know, has your energy level with it varied? Where are you at with a good future podcast and how has that changed?
0: Yeah. Oh, look, that's another great topic to reflect on. And I've got more energy than ever. I fell into the podcast world with very little expectations. I knew that the topics I wanted to talk about weren't being talked about. There was a gap there and I felt that I could ask questions, but I I didn't really know what I would get out of it or where it would lead. But I think the key benefit that I've taken personally is a really valuable personal development in terms of active listening and being able to ask questions. And for a consultant, that's so valuable. That's all you do. You have meetings and your job essentially is to ask questions and to tease out what are the problems in these organizations? And you've got to dig below the answers that are verbalized and really understand and, and have questions that, that dig deeper. That's the same with a podcast. And so I've really embraced that. I think I'm scared to listen to some of those early episodes because I'm sure <laughs> I'll cringe at, at how bad the audio is and my own stumbling on questions and all those sorts of bits and pieces. But the paradox is that... When you start early on, you don't want a big audience because you're probably terrible. So it all works well that when you start out, you don't have a big audience. Everybody learns together, and you grow. I'm approaching number one hundred. I've got a, a, you know a big and growing committed audience now. That's growing every week. More and more people reaching out from you know it's sort of a concentric circle stretching around the world, and that's really exciting. And I think my podcast and my own understanding of the field of of sustainable investing has grown together. I think my timing was excellent. In some ways, I was very lucky to both in terms of the the themes and and the, the field, as much as you say about the world of podcasting, which exploded in 2020 when everybody was at home and wanted to share their opinions and their gripes with the world. So yeah, it's been a really powerful personal development piece. And it's interesting how I started because I discovered this world of impact investing and it brought together my interests from uh, development economics, international development, and then I was working in finance. Impact investing was a real light bulb moment. It was like, oh, wow, I can bring together these two parts of my world. And I thought that's a, a perfect thematic for a podcast. And at that stage, I was the one asking questions because I felt that I was naive, maybe not naive, but curious. <laughs> uh, I had lots of questions uh, and I think that came through. And now, two, three years later, I'm being asked those questions by younger people and being invited to speak at conferences and those sorts of things. So it's been a really great journey with the podcast at the centre and I've still got that energy. Early on, it seems ridiculous now, but I felt like, oh, have I run out of people to speak to in you know the impact investment <laughs> sector? And you sort of stutter for a moment, but then that's just you wearing your own blinkers. And as soon as you stretch it and you become... More ingrained in the industry, you realize how broad it is mm. and the many different voices. People like yourself, who I wouldn't have discovered otherwise, having these great, broader, more philosophical discussions about this field. You know, what a great opportunity. So, yeah, onward. You are, uh, I think you have a, a higher output than me. <laughs> You've got great systems to get it done, but, but has it changed from the, I guess, always inevitable naivety at the start to, um, Having a great track record,
1: yeah, I share a similar sentiment. I mean, it, it started with an interest in a particular field, and thought you know that that podcasting would be a really good mechanism to to gain some familiarity with it, both with the people and the subject matter. You know, just start to understand what conversations are actually important and worth having in the context of sustainable business and, and social enterprise. And so, yeah, that that was mainly the object from the very beginning, but it has shifted. I feel like multiple times now. I think we're publishing episode 225 or something this week. At least at, while we're recording here, uh, you know, I, I've thought about where the podcast kind of fits in. Like, I need to mentally place it somewhere. It feels like I have that kind of obsession of like, how does it fit in the concept of what you know my business is? Me as you know, a, a, an entrepreneur. Where does the podcast fit for me? And ultimately where it's developed, like I thought about it as to some business development engine or whatever, you know, especially in the context of consulting, I'm doing less consulting now than I was. And what what is kind of felt to make the most sense for me ultimately is that, The podcast is really a research mechanism for everything else for me. So I feel like the podcast, the conversations that I have on it, the people I connect with are now ultimately fueling the writing that I do on, on the backside of it, you know, and and what sort of fodder and things that I, I sit with for, for articles, ideas, and otherwise. And so, I'm writing right now an update for our newsletter, Better World Weekly Newsletter, in the shift in this kind of actually being something of an announcement, a new project, what we're calling the Learn Ensemble Project. But really, this is to put together a resource library for the who, what, why, where, and how of building a better world. And so I see these different conversations with folks like yourself who have the variable expertise from the world of impact investing to conversations I had last week in regenerative agriculture. You know, I'm trying to get all these little subsets of questions answered now at this point and kind of like start to piece those together. And what I imagine is some kind of conceptual library. It's shaped. So much for, for me and the, the business that I have now, and as well, the community that I've developed. I think maybe the very first person that I interviewed, her name is Adrienne Chandra Huff. She's from Bodhi Surf Yoga, a, a surf and yoga resort, a certified B corporation in, in Costa Rica. And her, her co-founders too, they've been some of my, my best of friends ever since that point uh, when she was generous enough to be the first guest that I interviewed who wasn't a family member or a friend. So, you know, it, it, I've made some really meaningful connections from it. And, and now I'm really interested into, you know, like you, after gaining what I felt is maybe one, some confidence in the fact that I had some subject matter expertise, you know, but likewise, the subject matter expertise to really dive deep into the material you know, and the the substance of it, and, and hopefully start to develop or reflect some new and interesting or original thoughts as as it pertains to the world of social enterprise and sustainable business, and definitely some thoughts that that won't be new and interesting. You know, I'm I'm counting on that as well in that process. But you know, that's how it goes. There's some wins and there's some losses. But I, I've really enjoyed how it's shaped. It's it's been you know, ebbs and flows in the energy levels. I think that's also been matched with the arrival of my wife and I's first son too. So that had a big, you know, kind of hit my energy level. So it's hard to tell if that was the podcast or my baby boy, but you know, what are you going to do?
0: Yeah. Oh, look, well, congratulations. That's great to hear. <laughs> Mom and Baba healthy. Great to hear. But look, so interesting, that idea of the coalescing of ideas and people may, if someone came to this fresh, they may say, you're talking about, you know, you've got a a surf yoga entrepreneur and then this guy's talking about sustainable finance, that these are so vastly different. What's the the linkage? But to me, the linkage is so natural. Those Mm. things are are clearly, it's that underlying philosophy of, I don't want to say, I've pulled away from saying a lifestyle business because who wants a career that doesn't factor in their lifestyle, right? I think that that's Mm. never really a, a positive option, but finding balance in life and in all things and yoga, surfing, and business. What a great way to combine <laughs> combine things. But then in impact investing, it is recognizing that our ecosystems have a certain absorptive capacity and we're pushing beyond that. Um, and mm-hmm. that it simply can't go on that we need to find balance. Otherwise, we're going to kill ourselves and, and destroy our world. And so that to me seems really natural. And that if you're an impact investor, that you're most often someone who's worked in traditional finance and you've got a seat in financial services and you probably see that things aren't quite right. You've seen that things are going to change. And from my own processes, that's certainly, you know, the anecdotal evidence that I've got because so many of my guests have said, I was working away. I was, you know, making wealthy people richer and didn't feel that it was sustainable in terms of the business or in terms of that environmental sustainability concept And that they had a light bulb moment and they felt that I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and ditch this business. I want to use the power of finance to make positive change. And then you look at social enterprise and I think people have had the same revelation. You look at the way people who have no understanding of finances are saying, hang on, I've got a pension fund. Hang on, I've got a bank account. I want to direct that towards companies and businesses that, that share my values and that aren't exploiting the world. So, yeah, I see a real coalescing of these ideas coming together, everybody drawing towards a central ideal, and we don't have to call it sustainability or social impact or, or have sort of a central ideal, but maybe it's balance mm. in, in all things. Uh, you know, you've got to try and find that that central source of truth, I think, to stay sane and and to have a, you know, stay on board with a mission. I work as much on the financial strategy is the communications and storytelling side of things for for impact investors. And I think that, that having a mission, while it is marketing jargon and, and people can get frustrated <laughs> with it, I think the mission to me is a really central pivot point. And it's what I always look for in an organization. And there are good ones and there are bad ones, but a good one isn't the tagline, isn't the marketing tagline. It's something It's a little bit deeper underneath. And it's something that no matter how the ebbs and flows and the pivots of an organisation, and that the strategies change, the mission stays solid. It's that off in the distance north star that you're driving towards, and that every morning you get up and you're like, "That's why I'm doing it." And I like the term mission. I think that's powerful. Mission that organisations. I like it. I think everybody has a mission, but it's really unearthing it. Coming back to that, the podcast skill set of asking questions and, and digging down. You know, the five whys. Yeah, but why do you want to do it? But why? And you get d- deeper and deeper, and then finally you have this sort of light bulb moment of, oh, that's right. That's really that really captures everything that we're doing, and all of those other things are just features of our product. They're not really the mission. So, yeah, I think that's a powerful piece. And I also like the word coalescing. I think that that sums it up. Everybody <laughs> sort of coming together with a some sort of message that we can't quite hear, but we're all drawing towards something. So, yeah, I think that's powerful.
1: Mm. Well, and I'm with you on that. I think that living sustainably, socially, and environmentally, as as we're coming to gain a greater understanding of of what that means specifically, I I don't think that that can be just such a, a tactical and mechanical switch and change. I think that it is inevitably something much deeper to where it does have to be based off of, I think, real societal lifestyle changes from what it is that we value and what sort of different constraints that you know, we take very seriously it's in the context of business or, you know, impact investment, whatever it might be, I, you know, at least what I'm starting to see where the, the spectrum starts to vary. There's a you know term coined long ago about the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. And, you know, I'm starting to feel like that, that doesn't exactly go far enough. In that context, for me, it feels like those are still exactly on the same line, people, planet, and profit alongside each other. Where I feel that it needs to go is to where people and planet are actually prioritized and put in front of profit in that the constraints are set to be a bit different. You know, if we're evaluating our, our considerations, our mining for, for the planet and the people that live on it in the same context as profit, then I, I think that we're not exactly getting to the change to where we need to go. It's progress. Undoubtedly, I, I certainly see it as progress but i think you know as you mentioned some of those folks that you host on your podcast you know they see using the world of finance to affect positive change it's like the outcome is shouldn't necessarily be returns although that is a byproduct of that system that exists the outcome should in fact be positive change you know or in many cases in a lot of businesses it should be doing less harm which is kind of a tier of where we need to get to as opposed to like seeking to do positive change Even, you know, the most renowned, I'm wearing a Patagonia hat here right now, and and this is something I've spoken on this podcast before, you know, Patagonia is not perfectly sustainable. They don't have complete transparency just yet in their supply chain. A percentage of their line is fair trade certified, uh, verifiably, you know, and and so one of the the renowned examples of a, a socially environmentally responsible business is still has a ways to go. I'm still a fan of Patagonia and appreciate their transparency and everything. I just think that there's there's a slight differential there to where it's like if we do in fact value you know the planet, our natural ecosystems, and as well the, the people that live on it, we need to make decisions that you know prioritize positive outcomes for them, even if that can come in conflict with what would seem to be the financial returns. Is that making some sense at all? At least from from how I'm taking it.
0: Oh, definitely. I think I think yeah. that that is the undercurrent of this world of managing those different metrics, and for mm-hmm. so long you know, we have 200, 300 years of of modern accounting and it's always been neat and tidy. I mean, it's been, it's had lots of ups and downs and it's adapted a lot, but essentially it whittled down to risk versus return. It whittled down to this dollar figure, a profit number. It's clean. It's really easy to measure Mm -hmm. success, you know, percentage gains up this year. Good. Right. (laughs) But that was useful. But I think that the other factors that matter that you've talked about, the planet, the people, these factors, I think we all know they're important, but they're just very difficult to measure. And so I think that, that that's what's changing, that we're now almost being forced, but we do have different technological systems that are helping with that impact measurement. But if I'm discussing these issues with people that aren't haven't really been through that sort of philosophical discussion, like, what are you talking about? You know, finance is finance. You want to make money. Isn't that obvious? And if you simply overlay it by saying, it doesn't matter what your values are. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're an environmentalist. All that really matters is that when you're investing, you want as much data as possible. When you're reviewing a business, you want to know more about it than less. I think that's pretty hard to argue with. And so now we've got all of this financial data, but we've also got data about waste and efficiency, about how workers are being treated, about diversity. You look at biology and it's pretty clear that for a species to flourish, you need diversity of genetic diversity, right? It's the same in an organisation. You want different views. You want to target different customers. So from that base level, I think more data is better and we're getting that more than ever. We've now slowly, with the new IISB standards, following sort of the European um, EU taxonomy, in terms of mandating financial reporting beyond just financial factors, reporting mm. climate impacts, reporting diversity, nature-based biodiversity assessments. I think, yes, there are going to be problems. Yes, there are going to be organisations that, that greenwash and say, we're doing all of these things, it's great, but the metrics are now becoming more stringent, more reliable, and yeah, it doesn't matter what your view is, but we've now got a broader set of metrics. And I think that's really powerful. yeah, and I appreciate
1: that, and I think that that's a convincing point of view. I guess the areas where I'm most interested in that, I think we we can measure. perhaps it's the the difficulty in, in transparency and you know what what people kind of defer to, the complexity of like the global supply chain. but for for instance, this example that I always put in my head is a company, let's put it, you know, in the fashion industry for one, where, where there's, there's much of this very rampant labor abuse, but everyone who, you know, works within that supply chain, ideally should be paid a verifiable living wage, you know, depending on the the context, you know, and living wages is relative to the locality that they're inhabiting. But there's a lot of other things that become more difficult to measure for me. But that feels to me like a very strong, and I think that the reason why we can't measure it is because you know what we're leaning to is this you know silhouetted global supply chain that's become far too complex and, and difficult to keep track of. But I do think that that kind of plays to, to many of those those larger companies' benefits. But that's the thing for me that that feels very clear, and, and in the context of you know the, the different set of constraints people implanted over it, you know I feel like there should be. At some level, we should agree, societally, essentially, that if a business cannot pay people a verifiable living wage to operate and perhaps make their product and get their product to shelves, it doesn't seem to me worthwhile that that business exists. Where it, it should be a different level, you know, of constraints to where we should agree that that's not okay. Because at some point, it seems like you know what what level of exploitation are we okay with? It's like, well, we can't, you know, verifiably pay everyone a living wage. It's diff- too difficult. It's going to cost too much to, to find out, to track, whatever it is. At some point, isn't that where we should see that it's not worth that business existing? Or, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's a progression. That's a bit of a pipe dream. But mm. that's where I feel like there's, you know, a hard distinction. Because if we're okay with that uncertainty, I feel like we're likewise okay with some level of voy- exploitation for the sake of that business or just business, You know, in general, surviving.
0: Mm, That's a huge topic. And that does swing the breadth of what brought me into impact investing, which was the international development side and understanding the varied benefits from globalization and the way our world's changing, and then overlaying finance and understanding that as a lever for change. But look, you know, what is a living wage? I mean, even that is a huge question because obviously, so many different economies with very different standards of life and different types of work. Um, different social safety net and governments having, you know, different levels of impact. And, and then even if we look at the developed world and developing markets, even the US is different because of the diverse, you know, it's so broad in terms of, of, um, there's no real national, um, minimum wage and, and there's so much debate about that and lots changing. And I think that idea of, I mean, it's a, it's almost a, um, I think it's a really valuable provocation and to not make assumptions about, oh, look, there's always going to be, a working class and businesses need, it's positive for business to have lower wages, these oversimplifications. And if you challenge that and say, on the one hand, actually paying your workers more is great because the lowest paid people, if they have an increase in their wage, they're the ones that are going to spend that money. And where are they going to spend it? They're going to spend it locally. So that's going to be a broad macroeconomic benefit. While if those dollars go into the hands of the wealthy, they tend to save it, it doesn't get cycled through the economy as much. So that's one layer. And the second layer being, and in terms of that provocation of changing the way people think, if your business model can't sustain paying your staff a living wage, perhaps your business model is the problem, not, I guess, rules about setting minimum wages and those sorts of things. But coming back to the practicalities and, you know, you and I sitting here, but these are such massive macro issues, you know, we we don't have much control locally, let alone offshore. We do have the power of making decisions. And I think that's the shift we've seen where it's clearly a benefit to the product and to the story you can tell and to your reputation if you are explicit about we made the decision to pay our workers X, happy workers, better product, Customers now are more aware to that. Not everybody. Some people are just like, they just look at the tag, they just want the cheap, and they walk out of the shop and they don't think about it. That's changing. And I think that's that's what is driving this change. And as I said, you know, it shouldn't be a crotch that these are big problems, we can't control it. When you make a decision to buy something, that's the power. And if everybody utilised that, if everybody did a little bit of reading, you got a supercomputer in your product, you know, do a minute's research and understand where the product comes from. If there's no information about where it comes from, then you can be pretty sure that it's not great. And the companies like Patagonia, but there's a whole range of them now nipping at Patagonia's heels. And I think that's great. That it's a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom. And that's right. I think that's what you're leading with and telling the stories of, which is really powerful. And then hopefully I come from the other direction in terms of the investors and the capital and how we can steer investment capital to those companies that are being more transparent and drive that change from different different directions.
1: John what stories are you most excited to dive into here in the the near future with the good future podcast for the the world of ESG and, and sustainable finance what what threads are you most interested in pulling on right now
0: yeah oh look great question it's so exciting I've got so many directions always got a very <laughs> long list but just jumping straight to the top of that list I'll start with the very dry and boring and that is impact measurement something that we always talk about we've touched on it today but there is, we're at a moment right now where lots of these different frameworks are all coming together and harmonizing. So that's something that is always an ongoing conversation, but we are seeing a bit of a moment here, which is quite exciting. But then to the more tangible and what I think more interesting is the recognition of the value of biodiversity Mm. and nature-based assessments and transparency. And so, yeah, there's a real focus on trying to value biodiversity and recognising that it's so vital to maintain. And, and we talk about carbon emissions and we talk about living wages and we've got lots of these metrics and factors that are important and that we're leading towards. But I think biodiversity is one that we take for granted. And if you if you start doing the reading, it just gets so depressing of the mm. extinction rates I mean, even even the food we eat is becoming less diverse and we're just losing these wild spaces um, where more plastic in the oceans. And so yeah, to me, that's a really exciting movement that I think everybody recognizes the the problems with carbon emissions and there's lots of great measurement and, and lots of great discussion. So now let's try and leverage all of those lessons and and research and understand the value of biodiversity. Look, I think naturally we all understand it, but we live in a, in a capitalist system ruled by economics. And so in some ways we need to use those metrics and speak that language. And as always need to make sure we're not just putting a dollar value on things so they can be exploited more. We need to recognize their values so they can be conserved and saved. So that's where I'm headed. How about yourself?
1: Exciting. Well, for us right now, there's there's really kind of three, three pillars that we're honing in on, especially as I feel like maybe in contrast to you a little bit, while you speak to a, a lot of folks from a lot of various organizations, different positions, you know we're, we're in different industries and sectors regenerative agriculture I mean next week we're talking local like municipality solar power just a lot of realms that you know we're, we're speaking with people whose career and work is impact a lot of overlap but maybe somewhat of a, a broader scope in that way and so i look for the parallels and the ways in which people are uh, approaching the work of of building a better world and I, I think the first, one that I'm most excited about is actually uh, looking to craft that, like work with these folks to extract and craft. what What is a vision for that? I think there's a lot of ways that we can move forward. I think there's definitely a lot of problems that we're working to uh, uh, run uh, away from. But I think that uh, likewise, it's not often talked about what inspiring of a vision that we could craft to have you know, people be, feel very energized, motivated, and inspired to, to work towards. I, th- I think it's often... With what happens with with the news cycle, you know, we can certainly uh, dwell on the negative and the cynicism, as opposed to to look for, you know, what what's worth saving, what's worth working towards. I think that's an, an important component. The second there is, you know, really trying to to dig deep into the ways in which, you know, I, I like to to call it kind of creating awe or inspiring awe, because I just think that there's there's so many ways in which the the planet and the people that live on it already are are just so incredible. You know, I think that the the deeper that you dive into whatever it might be, the subsections of regenerative agriculture, you know, just talking about soil health or talking about marine protected areas and looking to to reforest and, and grow throves of, of mangroves. It's like, there's just so many ways if you really hone in on these very specific things that might be climate solutions or social solutions, that I'm just endlessly blown away. And that's something that I, I really like to dig for with our, our podcast, our, our things, you know, and the people who are working with them and within various sectors of just like, you know, I, like I have this feeling of like, oh, I just got to share that with a friend. It's kind of like how I think about it. I'm like, I have to tell somebody about that. Usually it's my wife after I, you know, stop recording on the podcast, but like, you won't believe what I just heard. And I think the last component for us is how that all connects to more meaning and and purpose in in life and work. You know, because like I said earlier, I feel like, you know, living more sustainably, socially, environmentally is not just, you know, about switching things very tactically and mechanically. I, I genuinely think that it's a different way of being. And I think. You know, I make the case and, and argue that it's a healthier way of being. You know, and I, I'm sure that that you agree with that in a lot of ways. Just you know, the the big word that's become thrown around quite a bit is balance. You know, in the context of life and work, and I think that word can go for a while in the the context of of sustainability, both as it relates to the social environmental element. So those are the the three threads that I, I'm pulling on right now, and, and quite excited to to do so.
0: Well, that's it. And to me, what comes through is how lucky we are in this modern world that we're just individuals. We don't have mainstream news organizations behind us, but yet we can reach out to people that we wouldn't otherwise know, ask them questions, have these conversations, and share the story globally. I think that's just Mm. such an amazing opportunity. gets me excited every day. I wouldn't have had contact with you without it, so that's great, and I can absorb all of your positive energy, which is awesome. (laughs) So, yeah, hope people absorb some of that i hope they enjoy listening to our podcasts and um yeah there's no barriers everyone can do it but yeah engage and and enjoy it all
1: i dig it john well as uh, always it's it's a pleasure to to chat and get reconnected let's see one thing before we tidy up there since i see a full bookshelf behind you you told me it wasn't full recently but that's changed but hit me with a, a book recommendation maybe something you've been reading recently that's impacted you
0: yeah. Well, look, it was, I'll only say it was empty because uh, because I'd moved house. So it was all in boxes. I'm always surrounded by lots of books. Let me have a look. I ask my own guests that question and, and here I am struggling, but all right, I'll recommend as I do with my guests often stumble and they want some profound new book about you know, the, the cutting edge world of ESG or something. But no, what's on my bedside table is a book about Bob Hawke, who's a well-known ex-Prime Minister of Australia through the 80s. And in massively stark contrast to the, the painful uh, polarisation of politics at the moment, he was in power for, I think, two, maybe three terms. Uh, he was so popular... And it was because of personality in, in a really positive way. He was, he sort of embodied a, a sort of traditional Aussie values of mateship. He wasn't polished, right? He was, he was really, um, you know, understood the working class. I mean, he was a union guy from the start. But anyway, this book was really powerful. Bob Hawke is now, I think, in his 80s. He's getting old, but he, he's still definitely with it. And the author was originally a surf journalist. So I think that's how Hmm. the two things came together. Um, And he got this amazing access to still probably Australia's most popular politician. And he, look, he led, I think that the policy changes that he drove are still what is making Australia successful and vibrant to even today Hmm. in terms of opening up to Asian markets, to a lot of deregulation. And yeah, I think A lot of it more on that social democracy side, more left-leaning, but at the same time very pragmatic about the importance of trade um, and opening up and modernising the economy. Anyway, I won't go on. A US audience probably won't be be (laughs) as interested as a past Australian Prime Minister, but certainly if there is interest, look up Bob Hawke because, yeah, he's just such a character, a real larrikin and, and, yeah, quite staggering that, 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 that he did so well. But, yeah, great guy, good book.
1: Good recommendation. I dig it. Awesome. Well, John, we'll sign off here. I'd love to know what, what are the best links for folks to, to keep up with you in the good future where you want listeners of the Social Entrepreneurship and Innovation podcast to head?
0: For sure. Well, look, jump onto my website, johntreadgold.com uh, and you'll find all the podcast episodes there with, with descriptions and links that's the best place to go, and there's lots of bits and pieces there. You can you can cruise around some articles and my my thinking. And we're also on Instagram, Good Future Podcast, and I think in terms of that broader financial approach of ESG and impact, I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So always happy to follow people there, and yeah, come along and have a chat. Ask me any questions. How about yourself? Sounds good. Like my audience is is uh, always interested in in a broader perspective on social enterprise. Where can they find you?
1: Sure. So, uh, our full archive of episodes for the Social Entrepreneurship and Innovation Podcast are at socialentrepreneurship.fm. And then uh, all things Grow Ensemble, everything else we're working on are at growensemble.com. Probably Better World Weekly newsletter that I write and publish myself, send out every single Monday. Best place to, to keep up with my musings on all things building a better world. That's at growensemble.com backslash newsletter. And like you, I think I'm most active on LinkedIn and maybe Twitter as well. So we'll have all those things for both sides linked up in our our show post to, to check out. Thanks again, John.
0: Perfect.